Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace Church. We are in Genesis 1, looking at days 2 and 3 today. You will need your Bible to walk with us through this text. If you will, turn with me to Genesis 1 and verse 6. We've been in a series in Genesis now. This is our sixth sermon. We're looking at days 2 and 3 together. You might think, how is that possible? It took you five sermons to get through day 1. How now in the sixth sermon are you going to go through days 2 and 3? And the reason is, is I've been laying a whole bunch of foundation, I hope, that then I don't have to come back and relay so we can sort of start moving through these days. So we'll look at days two and three together, if you will. Look there with me at Genesis 1, verses 6 through 13. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse, from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth Sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this word that your spirit would cause our minds to understand what's being said here, that you would illumine our darkened minds, that you would reveal yourself to us in your word. We would receive that with humility, with faith, with joy. We pray that we would understand that we are here created by you for the purpose of worship, that you are the Lord and sovereign of all things that we together would trust you and give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we turn to consider days two through three. As with all six days of the creation account, we will look at how the Spirit of God is forming and filling the incomplete creation into a complete creation so that we hear the language in Genesis 2-1 that God completed his work of creation And as we consider the text, we will see the Lord making clear distinctions. Particularly these texts in days 2 and 3, we're going to see these clear distinctions or separations. Most appropriately for today, really the Lord separating the waters. Now, in the next sermon, we'll hear about these kinds and what the Lord is doing there. But today, the separation of the waters will be our focus And here comes a question maybe you're wondering is, why take days two and three together? Why take them together? I mean, I took day one on its own and then even did an aside on how long's a day. Now I'm going to take days two and three together. Why do so? Well, because Moses brings days two and three together under one category of God's work in completion. The work of forming or separating, causing well-ordered distinctions. Further, Moses brings them those two days together under one benediction. If you remember, he says when he completes a work, it is good. God saw that it is good, or it was good. 
Look at Genesis 1, 6 through 10. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. But you have no benediction. You have no, and it was good. So you continue on, verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So there comes your benediction. Moses is not saying that day two failed to be good. That's not his point. He doesn't leave off this benedictory comment, and it was good, or God saw it was good, because he thinks day two wasn't really very good. That's not the point. His point is that these two days come together under this one, if you will, work of separating the waters. And that work of separation of the waters is incomplete until day three. So this morning, I really want to put the majority of our focus on two primary considerations with regard to days two and three. And here's what they are. First, the waters separated and the rule of God. We're going to talk about the separation of the waters, the fact that God divides the waters or separates them, and God's rule. Second, the waters separated and the worship of God. Now, it might seem like an odd outline for me to give you. But it's important that we keep what Moses is doing in the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, together. He is teaching Israel about the Lord who has brought her out of Egypt in the Exodus. He's teaching Israel about God, our creator, and about our purpose as creatures in worshiping him. Now, as an aside, I have been somewhat personally stunned in my study over the last couple weeks by how Moses does that in accounting for the separation of the waters. So I intend to get into that a bit this morning. But let's look at our first point. The waters separated and the rule of God. The waters separated and the rule of God. Look at Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void or uninhabitable. doesn't mean it has no form whatsoever in any sense, but it's without form in the sense of being uninhabitable by creatures and void. doesn't mean void like there's nothing there. It means it's uninhabited. It's not yet been inhabited. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Note that language, over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the wind of God, the breath of God, the ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Note that language, the face of the waters. So please note those two emphases in the embryonic creation or the incomplete creation or creation before it begins to be formed and filled. The face of the deep and the face of the waters. These are really two parallel statements pointing to the same state, our early state of the creation. There was some kind of primordial waters covering the creation. And this state of chaos, this, what I mean by chaos, lack of distinction and order, this lack of distinction and order made the creation uninhabitable and uninhabited. And the Holy Spirit is present. And what's he doing? He's ordering the creation. He's beautifying it. He's enlightening it. He's making distinctions by separation and kinds, and he's adorning it, filling it with things. And in days two and three, we're looking at this emphasis 
of really the well-ordered distinctions and boundaries that are created. There's a boundary, if you will, between the waters above and the waters below. A boundary, if you will, between the waters we call seas and the land. There are boundaries that are set, distinctions that are made. That's why we read what we do about separation in Genesis 1, 6 through 7. So look there. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. It's also why we read what we read in Genesis 1, 9 through 10. So look there. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. These are the separation of the waters. And what do we get as a result of the separation of the waters? Well, if you look at Genesis 1, 6, first thing we get is a firmament or an expanse in the midst of the waters. And the expanse separates the waters above from the waters below. And the expanse is called heaven or sky. In the King James, they call this a firmament. That expanse or that firmament distinguishes the waters below. If you think about the waters below, seas. Oceans, lakes, rivers, streams, etc., from the waters above, sky, the heavens. So, this really leads to two questions. First, really, what is an expanse? And second, what are the waters above the expanse? I just said there are waters above the expanse, the sky, and waters below the expanse. What is an expanse? What is a firmament? When you look up in the sky, if you go outside and you look up in the sky, you see the arc if you will, of the atmosphere, or something that looks like a bow or a vault of the sky. And you see that arc as you look up across the earth. You see that arc holding visible objects, if you will, like the sun, moon, stars, and clouds from which come the rain. It's a firmament or an expanse. It is a vault of heaven that holds the waters above it. So look at Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel, just so you don't have to take my word for it. Look at Ezekiel chapter 1, see another use of this. There's more than one, but I'm going to give you just a couple of examples. Ezekiel chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 22. So we have this, what seems to be apocalyptic kind of prophetic vision in Ezekiel 1. And notice this, it's talking about these living creatures. You're kind of looking at this sort of heavenly scene. And in verse 22, in this heavenly scene, you see this language over the heads of the living creatures. There was the likeness of an expanse. Or firmament, same Hebrew word, rakia. Notice this expanse, shining like an awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. Now look down at verse 26. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with human appearance. So this expanse or this firmament here seems to be holding some sort of throne and it's above these living creatures, these angels in this way. That Hebrew word rakia means, if you want to know what its root, the root of it means is really to literally hammer out a metal plate so that it can be fit to hold things. So you take some kind of metal plate, you hammer it out, 
so that it can hold things. Listen to how Job uses the same language. You don't have to turn there, but Job 37, 18, Job says this. When God is speaking to Job about the creation, he says, can you, like him, like God, can you, Job, like him, like God, spread out the skies, spread them out hard as a cast metal mirror? Can you spread them out? In other words, there's a kind of sky, a firmament, an expanse above that is seen as some sort of firmament, some sort of solid thing that holds stuff. God stretches out the heavens that we see above us. But that leads to a second question. What are the waters above the firmament or the expanse? What are the waters above it? I mean, we can look up and see the sky and see the clouds and see the sun and the moon and the stars and sort of get, okay, there's some sort of expanse. So I look up, it looks like some kind of firmament holding up all of that. I kind of get that imagery. But what about the waters above that? What are those about? We understand the waters below the firmament, below the expanse. We understand them. Like I can go over and look at the Pacific Ocean. Waters below the expanse, easy enough. We know that because those waters are given boundaries. And those boundaries we refer to as dry land. Look at Genesis 1 again and verse 9 and 10. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. I want you just to note that language, dry land. Just stick it in the back of your mind. We'll come back to it. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So this separation of waters from the dry land is fairly easy for us to grasp. And we also understand that the completion of this separation of waters, the waters above from the waters below and the waters below from the dry land, that completion of that is necessary for the creation to be inhabitable. We get that. But what are the waters above the expanse? That's the part that we're sort of hanging on. What is that? Matthew Poole, who's a Puritan commentator who does a synopsis of a number of commentators throughout history that's just being translated from Latin into English now, and I have the three volumes on Genesis, he provides two options for this. His options, first, option of what the waters are above the expanse, he looks to Psalm 148.4, and he says that the waters above are, because Psalm 148.4 references this, some kind of sea of waters placed by God above all the visible heavens. And he says about that, and they're reserved for an end known only to himself. What are they? The second option that Matthew Poole gives, and by the way, he doesn't decide on one of these two, really. The second option he gives is in keeping with Psalm 1811 and Psalm 104.4. In that language, the waters above are a reference to the waters in the clouds. So in one psalm, it's the waters above are a reference to this kind of sea of waters above the heaven of heavens that God reserves for some end known only to himself. And in another couple of psalms, it's a reference to the waters in the clouds. Thomas Aquinas actually provides a third option. Thomas Aquinas says it seems that all the waters being referred to above, well, all the waters that are going to be divided are primordial waters which are separated into the starry heavens, the sky, you know, the cloudy sky above, and the waters below. It's just really that simple for him. He's just saying it's something akin to that transparent body that we refer to as the cloudy sky, the starry space above. Something akin to that. But which position is correct of those three? This might dissatisfy you. I don't know. I don't have a clue. The good news is that neither do some of the brightest minds of the church. 
Men like Augustine and Aquinas. I mean, if you're going to pick a couple of titanic thinkers in the history of the church, you don't get much more significant than Aquinas and Augustine. Listen to what Aquinas quoting Augustine says. I answer with Augustine that these words of scripture have more authority than the most exalted human intellect. Hence, whatever these waters are and whatever their mode of existence, we cannot for a moment doubt that they are there. As to the nature of these waters, all are not agreed. That's the money answer right there. That is it. That they are there, we know from Scripture. What their nature is, all are not agreed. Can you cope with that? I know the fundamentalist impulses that we all probably have brewing in our hearts is, I gotta know. But what if it's just like, Scripture says they're there, what they are, we're not quite sure. Deal with it. What we do know is God created all things and God ordered them all for our benefit and thus God rules over them all for our good. Now I want you to hear this emphasis. God creates, God orders, God adorns. God creates, God orders, God adorns. God does that by the power of his word in accordance with his sovereign, holy, and beneficent will. Further, we read that God begins adorning creation and gives to creation the ability to reproduce. So look at Genesis 1.11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Notice that the earth is sprouting vegetation, so God is commanding, if you will, the earth to vegetate. Plants yielding seed, so that that seed can then reproduce. And fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. God created all things, and even those things which reproduce do so because God has created them with the ability to do so. Now, we'll consider God adorning the earth with kinds and animals, etc., in the coming weeks. For now, we just need to embrace the truth that God created and God rules. Now, you may not know this, but there's a polemic built into Genesis against the ancient Near Eastern gods. There's a polemic here. Frankly, there's not just a polemic against the ancient Near Eastern gods, but a polemic against naturalism built in that I'm not going to deal with today. I'll deal with it at a later date. But for a brief moment, I want to consider the polemic against the ancient Near Eastern gods. When I say the ancient Near Eastern gods, I'll name a few just to give some examples. The Sumerians, the Egyptians, from which Israel is coming out, and those who worship Baal. Baal is worshipped by the Ugaritic-speaking peoples in northern Syria. All three of those ancient Near Eastern peoples imputed the creation story to creaturely gods. What do I mean by creaturely gods? These are gods who have their own needs and wants and desires. And they tend to war with each other and create things for their own end, for their good. Because somehow they're improved by them. They have needs. These creaturely gods are involved in creation in a variety of ways. For the Sumerians, it was Anu, the sky god... And Enlil, the god of the atmosphere, who ruled the heavens. So there was a sky god and a god of the atmosphere who ruled the heavens. For the Ugaritic peoples, like I said, in northern Syria, it was Baal who rode on the clouds. By the way, that's why you hear things like, God is coming with the clouds. It's a polemic. Baal's riding on nothing because he is no thing. According to the Egyptian Memphite doctrine, the creator Ptah uses the primordial waters... And the primordial waters, by the way, are also a god called Noon, as the material of the creation. So essentially, 
he takes another god, the creator god for them, takes another god, the primordial waters, and he uses them as material of creation. For the Mesopotamians, to give another example, according to Enuma Leash, which you can read, the chaotic waters are the source of life, and they are composed of three gods, Apsu, Tiamat, and Mumu. Not like, you know, the kind of dress a woman wears around the house, a Mumu. Not like that, but anyway, so you guys know what I'm saying. And the creation comes out of these gods, particularly as the god Tiamat is slain, or the god of the waters is slain. And Moses is saying this, that God needed no lower creaturely gods to create. He didn't need them. God is not confused with his creation like these idols. He spoke, and it came to be. And God has rule over the seas and the rivers and the land. These created things are not autonomous deities. Rather, this is the creation of God over which he is sovereign. He created them. He established their function. He rules over them. The same is true with the vegetation with which God adorns the earth. God commands the earth to sprout forth vegetation according to its kind and to reproduce. The ancient Near Eastern gods would have had their gods participating in some sort of fertility activities, I'll say it that way, to cause vegetation to come from the ground. So you would have these actual kind of fertility cults that would participate in fertility behaviors, I'll say it that, as worship, so that the earth would sprout forth vegetation. But note that the earth produces and reproduces at the command, really the creative command of God, not because of some sexual act or battle between the gods. He adorned the creation without some idolatrous fertility practice of false gods. God spoke and all things came to be and thus God rules the creation. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now with that table set, I want to deal with how the separation of the waters have bearing on our worship. How do they have bearing on our worship? That's our second major point. The waters separated in the worship of God. I've contended throughout the series so far in Genesis that we're being taught about God and our own purpose as his image bearers, which we'll get into in the future, and that our purpose is to worship him. It's why we were made. We're made for the seventh day, for the Sabbath. To worship God, to dwell with him, to be his people. So here's a question I have for you. Well, what does the separation of waters have to do with that? Well, this might not be right on the surface of the text, but it's inferred from the whole of the Pentateuch, this five-book scroll that Moses composed. What do I mean? Well, I want to contend we're being taught two truths about worship. First, we were created to dwell with the Lord on a well-watered mountain. Did you hear that? We were created to dwell with the Lord on a well-watered mountain, a temple. And second, in the face of our fall into sin, the Lord has redeemed us to dwell with him on a well-watered mountain. You guys follow that so far? (laughs) Created for that purpose, we sin, God redeemed us to that purpose. Now I'm indebted to Dr. Michael Morales for his help on this, as I've read a book that he wrote on this in specific, which was quite helpful. But I want to look at our first major point, dwelling with the Lord on a well-watered mountain. At the beginning of Genesis, the whole of creation is under a watery ordeal. Everything's covered with these primordial waters, making them uninhabited and uninhabitable. And God's spirit is there. God's wind is there. God's breath is there blowing on the waters and separating the waters so that life might come to be. So that when the waters are separated, you start to see life sprouting forth on the earth. That's an important concept. And I want you to remember how I told you to note the phrase dry land. 
The waters were separated, and the seas were separated from the dry land. It's time to bring that back to mind. The emphasis on the third day is on dry land in opposition to being covered by waters. And when the waters are separated, then dry land appears, and we see vegetation or adornment begin, and we see a mountain that emerges for the purpose of dwelling with God. And you say, where does that mountain emerge? What are you talking about? That's not in the text. Well, in Genesis 2, we read about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve dwell with God on a mountain called Eden. How do we know that Eden is a mountain? Because Ezekiel 28, 13 through 14, tells us that Eden is a mountain. It's a mountain called Eden. If you want to look that up, Ezekiel 28, 13 through 14, it's right there. That there's a mountain that's come up in the dry land called Eden that has a garden. It's no longer under the waters, and Adam and Eve are to dwell on that mountain with God and to worship him, and that garden is well watered by these rivers that have been gathered up, given boundaries that come and water that mountain, that garden. So you have this lush, beautiful mountain garden temple, and you hear these phrases, there's onyx there and there's gold there. You guys remember that? It's this beautiful place. That garden is watered by rivers that flow into it and give it life. It's a beautiful, lush, well-watered garden mountain temple on which Adam and Eve dwell with God. Now, I'll deal with that more in Genesis 2, but I just want you to note the pattern. Out of a watery ordeal in Genesis 1-2, God separates the waters by his breath, by his spirit, by wind, if you will. The spirit, that's that word means. And dry land emerges with a beautifully adorned, well-watered mountain where man dwells with God in the light of day. That watery ordeal is gathered up And the waters that come forth in the rivers water the whole area, giving them beauty and life. And man ascends that mountain to worship God in his presence. That's the pattern set here in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a pattern that's set. Look at Psalm 104. I want you to see this there. Psalm 104 and verse 5. It's a psalm where singing of God's creation. And so you ought to see how it's commented upon. Psalm 104 and verse 5. He, that being God, set the earth, or the Lord, Yahweh, set the earth on its foundations, so that it should never be moved. Notice, you covered it with the deep as with the garment. The waters stood above the mountains. You guys hear the comment on Genesis 1-2? He's creating this, he's founding it, and then it's covered with the deep as with the garment, the water standing above the mountains. There's no dry land that's showing, in other words. Notice what it says, at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. In other words, they separated. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so they might not again cover the earth. So the mountains come out from this watery ordeal. The dry land comes. Now look at 104.10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. Notice that the waters will no longer cover or conceal life, but now the waters will give life. They're gathered together to give it, not conceal it. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. By the way, the river you hear mentioned in Hebrew in Genesis 2, Pashan, means to gush forth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among their branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. You hear the adorning that we hear when the God commands the vegetation to come forth. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. 
oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. In other words, the waters no longer conceal life, but give life. That's true in Psalm 46 as well. Jordan read from a part of that. But if you remember in Psalm 46, the waters are covering the earth in this kind of torrential judgment, if you will. And then all of a sudden, you read in Psalm 46 a change. And you hear this language. There was a river that made glad the city of God. God gathered them up and made glad his city. This is the pattern from watery ordeal that conceals life, that makes the earth uninhabitable and uninhabited, to the separation of waters by the Spirit of God, bringing dry land and a well-watered and beautifully adorned mountain where man dwells with the Lord. That's the pattern. But here's the problem. We sinned against God. We sinned against God. We rebelled. We became wicked. And we incurred death and judgment. Yet God also promised a Redeemer to save us. That Redeemer would undergo judgment so that we might be saved. And Genesis begins to build the pattern for that salvation through judgment. And it begins to build it right here in the separation of the waters. Look at Genesis chapter 6. You know which passage I'm turning to if you're familiar with the book, as we think about waters that cover the earth. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. I'll deal with that language when we get to Genesis 6. So the Lord said, I will blot out man... Whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So man has become wicked on the face of the earth, so God is going to blot out all these things he had created in Genesis 1. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is going to be gracious to Noah. God was going to judge the whole earth, but then deliver mankind through Noah. But how would God judge the earth? through a flood of waters that would again cover the earth and conceal life. The waters would again cover the earth and make it empty and void or uninhabitable and uninhabited. And Noah and mankind with him would be saved through that watery ordeal on the ark. So look at Genesis 8, 1 through 5. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind, a ruach, a spirit, blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest where? On the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and the 10th month, and the first day of the month, the tops of the mountain were seen. Now go down to verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was what? Dry. The dry ground. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So Noah is saved through the judgment of floodwaters. Then God's spirit blows on the waters and they separate and dry ground appears And Noah lands on that dry ground on the mountain where he does what? Worships God. 
where he worships God. This pattern continues right into the Exodus as God separates the waters of the Red Sea. How? By the blast of his nostrils. He breathes his spirit upon it. Exodus 15, 5 through 10 is quite clear about that. And Exodus tells us that they, clearly that they walked on dry ground. Same language. Pharaoh and Egypt fell in judgment to those waters they enclosed around them. So look at Exodus 14 and verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind, a ruach, all night, and made the sea, what? Dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now look down at verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. Now notice this language, when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God separates the waters and brings Israel out on dry ground out of the darkness of Egypt, and they're saved. And what do we hear? Out of the darkness into the morning light of God's salvation. And it was morning. God's mercies are new every morning. And Israel ascended to Mount Sinai to meet with God and to dwell with him there. Exodus 15, verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Exodus 15, and verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own what? Mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Sovereign grace, this continues right into the New Testament. How so? Jesus comes for his own watery ordeal. He's baptized into the waters as a sign of his taking the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. That's why he will reference to the apostles saying there is a baptism he's about to undergo after his baptism in water, pointing to what the baptism in water was supposed to sign, which that Christ would undergo the waters of the flood, the waters of judgment for us and for our salvation at the cross. That's why in 1 Peter 3 we're told that baptism corresponds to the waters of judgment in Noah's flood. That's why we're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that Moses had a baptism that he underwent and that Israel underwent it with him through the Red Sea. They were saved through God's watery judgment. Christ went into his watery trial at the cross. He bore our sins in the flood waters of God's judgment and he resurrected from the dead, which by the way in Luke, you don't read this in Luke because you don't read Greek unless you do, where it says Jesus refers to this as his exodon, his resurrection, his exodus, so that we might come through on dry ground. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, the heavenly city, and Christ beckons us to come to him. Come to me. If we look to him, we're saved. 
and our baptism is a sign of our salvation through the floodwaters of judgment in Christ. And as those saved through the watery trial will ascend to Mount Zion, to the heavenly city, to dwell with him. You see, Christ is redeeming us to dwell with the Lord on a well-watered mountain. Look at Revelation 21. We'll sort of wrap up the primary scripture we're looking at here. Revelation 21 and verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Listen, that isn't that God's opposed to oceans. The point is, the watery trial is over. There's no more death and judgment. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We go on to read about this city, and when we see the city, it's translucent with gold and bedulum and onyx and all the things we see in the garden. And we even see a river there. And there's no need for a temple, for the Lamb of God is its temple or nor light. Look at Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life from the Garden of Eden, remember? With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night, notice this, night will be no more. There is no more sea, no more watery trial. There is no more night, more darkness. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see it, sovereign grace? We're created for worship. We sinned, but Jesus saved us to dwell with him and to worship him. It's such good news. It's why we gather every Lord's Day. It's why we come together. Because we come together as Christ's people to dwell with the Lord. Yes, dwelling with God in the new heavens and the new earth is not yet ours in consummation. But if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. He is seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us, but you have come, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is why we gather to worship every Lord's Day. We gather in thanksgiving for receiving a kingdom by grace in Christ through faith.
and to offer acceptable worship. We come knowing that Christ is present with us as his word is read and preached and sung and prayed and seen in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you think about that enough. Christ is present here and he is speaking to us in his word as his appointed ministers proclaim that word. We're gathered together in his presence. That's not something you can do over live stream. That can't be somehow manufactured virtually. Christ walks among his churches and he's present with us in a peculiar manner in corporate worship. So we gather and the minister stands as the representative of Christ and speaks Christ's word. And the members, as Christ's people, respond to that word. It's a dialogue. Christ speaks, we reply. Christ calls us to worship, and we sing. Christ speaks the law to us, and we confess our sins. Christ speaks the forgiveness of our sins to us, and we sing in thanksgiving. Christ speaks the word of God to us, and we listen. We give our hearty amen. Christ gives us his body and blood in the Lord's Supper, and we receive it with thanksgiving. In response to his grace, we sing, and we give thanks in offering And hear this, Christ gets the last word as we hear his grace to us in the benediction. That's why you should avoid leaving before that moment. Like, i got to hurry off to my next appointment. I don't know what you're doing that's more important than hearing the Lord bless you with his grace. The last thing you hear before you walk out of here. What better day is there in your week than to gather with the Lord's people and hear Christ speak to us? The Lord comes to dwell with you and to speak to you every week in the gathered congregation as a kind of deposit of your eternal blessing in him. May we rejoice and give thanks. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ's grace to us, for his work purchasing grace on our behalf so that we might dwell with you, for the work of the Spirit in applying that to us. We give thanks that from beginning to end, you have been creating a people for your glory and our good, that we might live with you and worship you. We give thanks that in the face of our sin and rebellion and wickedness and the judgment deserved by us, you sent your son to redeem us, to bring us back to yourself. May we never cease to be thankful, to offer acceptable worship. And may Jesus come soon so that we can finally see the consummation of all things in him in the new heavens and new earth and hear the announcement that in the fullest and final sense, you are God, dwell with us and we with you. All things have been made new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.